Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm just thrilled to be here and to see former students and their families. So thanks so much for having me. Um, and uh, let me just see if, yep, I, it works. So, uh, so what I'd like to do is talk about uh, depression, being able to recognize depression, but then also trying to understand what are some things, real specific things that you can do to help people with that particular issue, all right? So that's hopefully where we're heading here. So uh, one of the things I think that's hard about depression is that it's very stigmatized. And maybe you you understand that intuitively. There are certain things that we don't talk about, right, in polite company. And depression's one of those things. It's hard to talk about, and that's why it's hard to address it, right? It's hard to address it uh, for a whole lot of reasons. So I just want to... Um, you know, say thanks to all of you who are willing to come out on a Friday night and talk about depression, actually. So, <laughs> I know, it's kind of amazing, actually. Uh, but one of the reasons why I'm guessing that it's important for uh, your church to talk about this is that it really is, quote-unquote, the common cold of mental health problems, all right? So, in other words, about one in six people or you could see about 16% of Americans are going to experience depression at some point in their lifetime, or about 1 in 10, you know, between 7 to 11% of Americans will suffer uh, depression uh, at any one point in a given year. So you can, you can see that of all the sort of mental health problems that you could talk about, depression's a really important one, right? Just because it's so prevalent, it, um, it shows up quite a bit. Um, but, you know, I actually just thought of this. I didn't put this in my slides, but uh, there are many famous Christians, actually, who have struggled a great deal with depression. So Charles Spurgeon, who's a very famous preacher in the 1800s, who struggled with depression. Martin Luther struggled with depression and anxiety. Um, uh, Edward J. Carnell, who was the past president of Fuller Seminary, struggled with depression and suicidal thinking. So a lot of, lot of, you, you know, you're, it's not just in the United States, it's also here in our churches, right? Now, uh, one of the things that's important though is to be able to pick it out, right? And to identify it. And so what I have up here, what I've listed are symptoms of depression. All right, and to to be able to say you have depression, you need to have any five of these over a two-week period. All right, so you're probably going to have either like a depressed mood, which basically means just feeling depressed, or you can have lost interest in the things that used to be interesting to you. So people who used to come out on a Friday night to to, to this and stop coming out on a Friday night to this sort of thing, who have lost interest in things that used to be interesting to them, that those might be signs that this person is struggling with depression. It could mean other things as well, right? So we don't want to come to the conclusion too quickly that this is depression, but at the same time, that could be part of what's going on. Um, uh, feeling worthless, feeling guilty, uh, having, uh, eating more, eating less, 
gaining weight, losing weight. And, of course, there's lots of other reasons you, that those things could happen besides depression. But if if these things all happen together, that's when we're going to say, hey, something like depression could be happening here, right? Fatigue, loss of energy, uh, difficulty concentrating, making decisions, you know, uh, like, for instance, difficulty doing your homework. Now, there could be lots of reasons you could have difficulty doing your homework, but one of them, and if it all fits together uh, in a constellation of kinds of symptoms, that's when you're going to say to yourself, hey, maybe my friend, maybe I am struggling with depression. Uh, sleeping too much, not sleeping enough, like waking up early in the morning and you just can't shut your brain off, right? That, those could be symptoms of depression. Now, by the way, that other thing, other different things could be going on as well, right? So one of the things that you want to do if you think that this is something that's going on, you want to check it out with a professional. So go find a professional who can help you kind of sort your way through, is this what's going on here? Uh, the last one, and this is kind of the more severe symptom of depression, and this would be starting to think about suicide. So having suicidal thinking definitely says, hey, this is getting serious. This is a serious kind of depression here that, that this person is experiencing. All right, so those are the kinds of things that you're looking for when you're trying to figure out, am I experiencing depression or is somebody else that I know uh, experiencing depression. Now, just to let you know, there are different kinds of depression, and so we're not going to go into a lot of detail about all the different varieties, but I just want to let you know there are different varieties. So the depression symptoms I was showing you is major depression. That's like running a fever of 104, Right, But persistent depressive disorder is like running a low-grade fever. That would be kind of low-grade depression. And then there's other kinds of depression that involve, uh, bipolar depressions involve uh, experiencing phases of mania with phases of depression. So there's different varieties of this, right? So once things get a little complicated like that, you definitely want to go find a professional who can help kind of sort out you know, is this, what kind of depression is this, and, and what is it that, what is it that I'm experiencing here? Now, by the way, there are, uh, gender differences when it comes to depression. In other words, women have a tendency to experience more, uh, depression as well as more anxiety. But one of the things that we like to kind of think about when we're thinking about this sort of thing is, are there also what's called protective factors? Are there things that take place that protect a person? And one of the protective factors for women is that they have a tendency to reach out for help more. Okay, so so they, they, they might say to themselves, wow, something's going on, I need some help. And they might reach out to a friend or they might reach out, if they're a student, they might reach out to a teacher. Uh, they might reach out to their pastor. Uh, so, so one of the things that takes place for women is that they tend to reach out more. And one of the things that we're going to see here in just a little bit is that depression is a risk factor for suicide. And one of the things in the United States that we know is that more men die by suicide. 
Well, why is that, that more men die? Well, one of the reasons could be that they don't have this protective factor of reaching out quite so much, all right? So keep that in mind. File that in the back of your mind somewhere. Why? Because reaching out is really important. That's that's an important uh, step to take. Now, uh, one thing that they found is not, they, they haven't found cultural differences in a number of studies as far as this incidence of depression. So in terms of, of whether uh, European Americans versus Asian Americans experience more depression or not, studies tend to say, hey, the, the, in the world, in fact, the World Health Organization says, Depression happens to exist in all countries across all races, ethnicities. Uh, now, by the way, I was saying one of the gender differences is that women experience more depression, but I should tell you that men experience depression a little differently. So if your, your, your male friend has depression, it might not look the same as your female friend who has depression. Like so, so women who have depression, uh, what happens is that they might, they just might feel more down, they might cry more, that sort of thing. Men might actually get more angry. Now, by the way, there are lots of other reasons why people get angry, right? But if you see a pattern going on in this person's life, there might be a relationship between anger and depression. So you can see more anger in men who are depressed. You can actually see more risk-taking. Or they might talk about, you know, pain that they're experiencing somewhere in their body. Now, by the way, they might just be experiencing pain somewhere in their body, right? So, you, again, I, I just want to emphasize, if you're worried about somebody best to reach out and see if you can get somebody to help you sort of negotiate your way through what's going on. Uh, uh, I'm going to actually skip that and uh, just talk about this, that uh, depression is actually the leading cause of disability in the world. And what that means is, that depression causes a lot of what I'll, what you could also say is just plain old illness. Right? So when you think about all the possible illnesses that people could have, depression really creates a lot of illness in our world, a lot of disability. All right? And basically, what that says to me is that depression is something to take seriously. So, and, and why is that? Because it causes people to stop going to school, stop going to work, uh, you know, all kinds of things that could, could happen so that people uh, end up not being able to be um, productive or they feel like they're going to be a burden to their family because they can't go to work, that sort of thing. There's all kinds of sort of domino effects that can happen when a person gets depressed. And that's why you need to take it seriously, right? Because it actually has bad consequences. Now, the, the worst bad consequence with uh, depression would be suicide, right? So suicide actually would be the ultimate worst bad, bad outcome when it comes to, to depression. Um, 
later on in the slides, hopefully we'll get to this part in the slides, one of the things I'll, I want to say, and I'll say it here in case we don't get to it, is that uh, only 1 to 3% of people, 7% of men, uh, 1 to 3% of people overall are going to actually, if they get depressed, are going to die by suicide. Okay, so I don't want to make it sound here with this slide that if you're depressed, you're going to uh, kill yourself or die by suicide. It doesn't work that way. It's actually few people who go on from being depressed to dying by suicide. So I don't want to be alarmist in any kind of way. But at the same time, I do want to say very frankly, depression is something serious. You want to take it seriously. And why is that? Because there are some bad outcomes that can happen uh, in terms of disability and in terms of suicide. And that's why you want to take depression seriously. Uh, I, I just thought you might be interested to know that um, what some of the suicide rates are in some of the countries in the world. And, and you'll notice up here when you look at these, that sometimes it's hard to get good data, right? It's hard sometimes to, to, to actually collect that data in a consistent way from every country in the world every year, okay? But, you know, generally speaking, one of the things that you'll notice is, is that uh, one of the higher countries with the highest suicide rate is South Korea. You'll see that. But China actually ends up down... And this was in 2012. If you look at in 2014, you'll notice if you're comparing 2013 in the U.S. and 2014 in China, you'll notice that uh, the United States rate is 12.6 per 100,000 people. And if you compare it apples to apples in China, it's 9.6 uh, uh, people per 100,000. So you can see that in China, it's a lower suicide rate. One of the things that's unusual about China in the world is that they're one of the only countries where women die more by suicide than men. In every country in the world, except for China and Bangladesh, uh, more men die by suicide, which is kind of an interesting, uh, interesting uh, fact. Um, so, uh, but you can see in the United States, uh, so this, these are people who live in the United States. These data are based in the United States here. So this would include all, uh, all people who live in the United States. Now, uh, let me just point out that the blue bar is males. The kind of red bar is females. And the green bar is everybody. Okay, that would be the males and the females put together. That's the green bar. All right? So this would be number of suicide deaths by gender and by by race, ethnicity, okay? But you can see that European Americans are are by far the folks who die the most when it comes to suicide. But does that mean oh good, we don't we don't have to worry, right? No, what, right? Because there are people who die in every race and every ethnicity, right? And so it's, 
it's not like we can sit back and say, okay, we're, we don't have to worry at all because, uh, uh, because every race and every ethnicity is represented here. But you can also see that in the United States, if you look at the blue bars, the blue bars are way bigger and way taller than the red bars, right? So you can see that more men, uh, die than, than women when it comes to dying by suicide. Now, uh, we don't have time to, you didn't ask me to come talk about suicide, so I don't have as much about that up here. Uh, but one of the things is that more women, younger women will attempt suicide. More men actually die by suicide. Okay, so now what I'd like to do is to talk about, because you did ask me to talk about depression. So what I'd like to talk about is six different factors that contribute to depression. All right? Six different things that could, that are going to create more vulnerability to depression. All right? And let's see if we can get some ideas. And so here's where I'm heading. I'm heading to, at the end of this, I'm going to ask you guys to help me come up with ideas. What could your church do to prevent these six things that I'm about to tell you about? Okay? So be ready for that. You're going to be on in just a little bit here. All right. So uh, the first thing I want to mention that contributes to suicide or to depression. I'm sorry. We're talking about depression. So the first thing uh, that I want to talk about is how you cope. When, because, you know, we all have problems, right? We all have difficulties in life. But the question is, how do you cope with those difficulties, right? So there's, generally speaking, three different ways you can cope with difficulties in your life. You can use what's called problem-focused coping, which is basically, hey, if I'm having trouble in my math class, then problem Problem solving would be, hey, I'm going to go talk to my teacher. I'm going to go get a math tutor. It's taking steps to problem solve, right? So that would be one kind of coping strategy, problem solving. The second kind is active emotional. Active emotional has to do with saying, oh, I know that this just feels really bad for me that I, I'm, I'm not uh, doing well in my math class, and it's really hard for me. Uh, and just being really aware of your own feelings of how hard this is to not, you know, meet your expectations or whatever. The last kind of coping is called avoidant emotional coping, and that has to do with trying to escape your feelings and your thoughts. Sort of like keeping your thoughts and your feelings at bay like this, and also trying to keep at bay uh, the problem or the stressor or whatever. Like, I'm not even going to think about math class. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to do anything about it. That would be an example of what's called avoidant emotional coping. Okay, I'm not going to let myself go there. I'm not going. And by the way, sometimes it's probably a good idea to not let yourself go places. Sometimes, right? But if it's a habitual way of handling difficult circumstances in your life, that actually creates vulnerability to depression. All right, so that's that's going to be our first characteristic that creates vulnerability to depression. Right. So 
uh, one of the things that they found is that uh, when they were comparing South Asian Americans, East Asian Americans, and European Americans, they found in all of these groups that avoidant emotional coping strategies predicted depression. All right, so a person who does a lot of that, now are there times you do that? Yeah, but if you do only that, and and a lot of that, that's gonna create vulnerability to depression. All right, so at some point in time, you have to take a problem-solving approach or you have to take the approach, hey, I'm gonna pay attention to how bad this uh, is feeling for me right now. Okay, now, one of the things that we wanna talk about and that hopefully we'll get to towards the end when I ask you to help me come up with how would our faith community here address some of these these vulnerabilities to depression? One of the things I want to point out is that these risk factors, risk factors means it creates vulnerability for depression in this case, these risk factors can get flipped on their heads and they can end up being protective factors. Okay, so what, what, you, what, what hopefully you have a chance to think about is just how do you take this information, flip it on its head, and figure out how can we put uh, put practices in place in our faith community to uh, reduce vulnerability to depression, right? So, um, so in this case, actually, if you were to reduce, if you were to maybe challenge people to not engage in that avoidant coping, if you were to encourage people to engage in more problem-focused coping, or uh, being more emotionally present to what's going on, uh, that would actually protect a person from depression. All right? Uh, may, maybe makes sense. Uh, now, by the way, engaging in this sort of thing is not only, not only avoidant coping, not only puts a person at risk for depression, but also for non-suicidal self-harm type behaviors. Okay, so definitely there's a good reason uh, why not to go that particular direction. All right, so that was the first one. The first one is avoidant coping. All right, so let's kind of think about different things that can create vulnerability to depression. So avoidant coping is one. Another one is perfectionism. All right, now, one of the reasons why perfectionism is really hard as human beings is, first of all, none of us can be it. Like, it's impossible. And, and, and primarily because we were all created out of dust from, by God, right? So there's a humanness to each one of us. And we all only have 24 hours every day. Right? And we forget things. Even with the best of intentions, we make mistakes. All right? So one of the biggest problems with perfectionism is that as human beings, we just can't get there. And by the way, that's why Jesus died on the cross, right? Because whatever we did to earn his favor was going to fall short. Okay, so accepting the fact that we're human beings. Uh, and, and on top of that, sinful human beings as well. So that's one of the reasons why perfectionism 
is, is very destructive to human beings. The second reason is that it involves what's called black or white thinking. Right? Have you guys ever heard of black or white thinking? Black and white thinking? Yeah, so black and white thinking has to do with it either has to be perfect or it's worthless. I either have to do it completely right, completely correctly, or I've failed completely. That's what's called black or white thinking, right? And for most of us human beings, we live our life in the middle, right? Because there's no way we can be perfect. None of us are striving to be complete failures, right? We're trying to strive for something more than that. But at the same time, to set up standards that are impossible to attain, that's why perfectionism is going to be so difficult. And why, and here's where we're heading with this, why it creates vulnerability to depression. All right? So the more perfectionistic a person that you are, the more... Uh, uh, at risk you are of depression. All right? So how do you know if you're perfectionistic? Well, here are six kinds of examples or pieces of perfectionism. All right? So different of you are going to have different ones of these. If you have all of these, you might say to yourself, wow, I could be at risk of depression. All right? So I might want to rethink whether I want to have every single one of these criteria up here. All right, so what are some of them? So seeing mistakes as failures. By the way, what's what would be a different way of seeing mistakes? Seeing them as learning opportunities. Right? Ah, oh, rats, I wanted to do that better. Well, I'll learn from it and all figure out how to do it better next time, as opposed to seeing all your mistakes as failures, all right? And and again, why, why is this not a good idea to go this direction? Because as human beings, we can't attain this, and you put yourself at risk for, de- for depression. Okay, so seeing mistakes as failures instead of opportunities for learning, uh, having... Um, having really high standards and ha- placing a great deal of importance on achieving them. Okay, so, so sort of like saying to yourself, I not only have high standards, but I need to achieve these high standards. Right? That can create risk for depression. Uh, parental criticism, so a, a parent being very critical about not meeting certain high standards, can create some difficulties in terms of vulnerability to depression, right? Uh, parental expectations uh, reflect the perception that parents set very high goals. So they not only, they're, they're not just critical, but they also set very high goals. Now, by the way, as parents, we do want to set high goals, right, to some extent. So this isn't suggesting, okay, as parents, just kind of give up, let your kids whatever, do whatever. That's not what this is suggesting. But this is suggesting that uh, holding a, a very high goal that's going to be extremely difficult to attain and being very critical about not being able to reach that 
could create some vulnerability for depression. All right, so that's that's what this is suggesting. Uh, so uh, being sort of plagued by the doubt that whatever I do isn't going to be good enough, it's not going to be re uh, uh, reach expectations. That would be the number five. And then being really focused on neatness and orderliness. Now, by the way, I'm pretty focused on neatness and orderliness. But at the same time, what you want to look at is kind of the constellation. Like, do I have all of these? And do I have all of these to a great extent? All right? Because if you have all of these to a great extent, one of the things that you want to, to uh, keep in mind is that this could create vulnerability to depression, okay? So uh, perfectionism predicts symptoms of depression. So, uh, so some of the things that you might want to work on is some of that black and white thinking, and we'll talk some more about that. Okay, so that's our number two, all right? So our first one, uh, thing that puts people at risk for depression would be a, that avoidant coping, Second one, perfectionism. Um, the third one is that that really can create, a, 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 that perfectionism probably uh, feeds into this third one, which is academic pressure. All right, so uh, there was a, a one study that was done with uh, Asian American young adult students uh, who actually found academic pressure and let me read that one first before we talk about interpersonal pressure, but who, that actually found academic pressure as more stressful than any pressure they experienced around their ethnic identity. In other words, that was worse than experiencing things like per, perceiving discrimination at school. So academic pressure really can create uh, challenges for people in terms of putting them at risk for depression. All right. Now, does that mean that I'm saying uh, y'all should just uh, not do anything at school? No, 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 exactly. That's not what I'm suggesting. But what I am suggesting is how you go about uh, encouraging and motivating your students to do the best that they can do. All right, and that uh, the notion of perfectionism can be challenging for kids and can create some vulnerability for depression. So it has more to do, so I'm certainly not suggesting don't have standards, high standards even for your kids in terms of achievement. Have high standards for your kids in terms of achievement. That It's important to do that kind of thing. But think about how you want to uh, engage in that and how you want to motivate your students to, um, to live up to those high standards that you have. All right, so that, that is what I'm suggesting. So what the, first, the, the third thing, actually, the third one is academic pressures. Okay, and we certainly see that in this particular study. But the fourth one is also up here, and it has to do with uh, interpersonal kind of stresses. So uh, interpersonal stresses creates a lot of vulnerability to depression uh, for uh, young people, 
for middle-aged people and for old people, right? So interpersonal difficulties just creates a lot of vulnerability to depression, right? So, 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 uh, keep, keep thinking about how can, how can this faith community, uh, address some of these things because there are things that every faith community can do around these sorts of things. Okay, so, uh, interpersonal stress. I just have a lot of slides up here just that all are gonna make the point that interpersonal stresses are extremely difficult to manage and create a lot of stress for people and a lot of vulnerability for depression, okay? So uh, feeling any kind of distance from a social source, that just means from somebody who's important to you, is very stressful, creates, um, creates vulnerability for depression. Uh, it also can create a suicidal kind of behavior, behavior meaning uh, thinking about suicide, attempting suicide, that sort of thing. Uh, but look at that, Asian Americans who experience high parental conflict, so a lot of conflict with the, between the parent and the kids, right, are like, are more likely to engage in suicidal behavior, are 30 times more likely to engage in suicidal behavior when compared to Asian American youth with low parental conflict. So I read that, and, and you know what my reaction is? Let's try to figure out how to keep conflict low. Now, and, and, and I'm not suggesting let's try to keep expectations low. Expectations still have to be high, right? But there's got to be a way to do this in a way that doesn't create stress, that then creates that vulnerability to depression. Okay, and so we'll, we'll talk some more about that. So, but, but you guys be thinking about ideas for how you might how that might happen. So um, so there's all kinds of research to suggest that any kind of family conflict creates vulnerability to depression, creates vulnerability to uh, suicide. In this case, uh, dysfunctional family dynamics, parent-child conflict, lack of family cohesion could all create vulnerability to suicidal kinds of behaviors. Uh, and, and one of the things that's been interesting is that usually people who, who are, have a vulnerability to suicide, actually it's because of their mental health issue. Uh, this particular researcher has found that even in the absence of a mental health issue, if there's family marital conflict, that can create vulnerability to suicide, right? Plus other kinds of perhaps, uh, uh, honor type commitments uh, that a person might have. Now, uh, so uh, let's see. So we've been we've just talked about four four different factors that can contribute to depression. So avoidant avoidant type coping strategies, um, perfectionism, academic stress, distance, emotional distance from interpersonal you know, people who are important to you interpersonally, all right? So our fifth one is people who have changed countries, right, who have immigrated from one country to another country are just going to experience a lot of stress, all right? So there's just a lot of stress involved in that. One of the pieces of stress that's involved in that is acculturation stress, 
So acculturation stress just has to do with this. It has to do with the fact that you've got a foot in two worlds, right? You've got one foot in one culture, and you've got one foot in another culture. And you're trying hard to figure out how to, like, be a human being in the middle of these two cultures, right? And that would be called bicultural stress, right? So trying to figure out how to have a foot in one world, maybe when you're at home, and another world when you're at work or at school, is just really complicated. It's very stressful. So the more stress you have of that nature, right, the, the more vulnerability you have to uh, depression. People, uh, immigrants, people who come from one country to another country are going to experience a lot of stress. And uh, I, I, I actually, uh, when I was eight years old, my parents were missionaries. They went to France and... So I, I have lots of stories on how hard it is to change countries. I, I know what that's like, and, and it's really challenging. It's very stressful, right? So I very much understand how changing countries create a lot of stress and can create vulnerability for depression. Now, by the way, does that mean that everybody who's changed countries is going to be depressed? No, that's not what I'm suggesting here. But it does mean that some there, there could be some vulnerability, and it could happen for some people that they are going to experience depression. Now, another piece that can happen, and by the way, we moved to France in the middle of those, those Vietnam War years where, I don't know if you're too much aware of this, but French people pretty much hated Americans. So there was a lot of discrimination against Americans. So uh, I, I very much remember all of that kind of thing, too. And, uh, and, and uh, prejudice or any kind of discrimination or any kind of stereotyping, right? You all know what stereotypes are, right? If you belong to this group of people, then this must be true about you. Whew, hate stereotypes. I, I imagine you probably don't like them as much as I do. Um, but any of that kind of thing can create stress and can create vulnerability for depression, which basically means the more we can do in our faith community to help a person manage their way through this kind of thing, the more we're going to be able to help that person manage what they need to manage in order to not have that vulnerability to depression. Right? That's, that's where we're headed with this. Now, by the way, uh, microaggressions, micro, you know, I mean, all of us know, I mean, there are macroaggressions, just outright institutionalized racism in some circumstances, right? That exists. Microaggressions are those more subtle kind where when they happen, you're like, was, what, what, what? just happened here, you know, where it's kind of harder to put your finger on what it is, but people who experience microaggressions, and I imagine that's probably most everybody here, uh, that can create vulnerability to a number of mental health problems. And uh, the model that this particular study developed found that the experience of microaggressions explained 20%, like one-fifth of what was going on in terms of the mental health problem. So it definitely makes a contribution to vulnerability to depression, right? It doesn't explain the whole story, but it explains part of the story. 
Okay, uh, let's see. Whoops, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. So another study found that um, experiencing uh, racial discrimination was related to family conflict. And we already talked about how family conflict is related to vulnerability to depression, right? So uh, so that's another piece. That's another sort of like puzzle that we're trying to put together here. Uh, let's see. So uh, high levels of perceived discrimination are related also to suicidal ideation and attempts. Now, uh, so we've talked about our five. We've talked about five. We have one more factor to talk about. So we've got the avoidant coping strategy. We've got... Um, perfectionism, academic stress, uh, distance, e emotional distance from interpersonal people who matter to us, right? And then all kinds of issues related to, it, it could be discrimination or immigration or being bicultural. All of those things can create some vulnerability. So our last one actually has to do with feeling like you're a burden in some way. So if, if you're not able to be productive in the way that you've always wanted to be or always were, something happens and all of a sudden you lose that capability of being productive, that can create vulnerability to depression. All right, so, uh, and, and this is really related to being afraid of being a burden, right? I don't want to be a burden to my family and the fear of being a burden can sometimes be what creates vulnerability to depression. And there are uh, many different studies that have found that limited functioning, right, severe chronic medical uh, issues, as well as all these other things that we've been talking about, right? So family conflict, discrimination, low acculturation, all of these things can contribute to stresses that people experience. Okay, so uh, we've just talked about six different factors that could contribute to depression, all right? So not that every one of these that you've experienced means for sure you're going to experience depression. No, that, that's not what that means. But it does mean that it's possible that if you experience some of these things, it would be possible that you could have some vulnerability to depression. So you'd want to just track it and see, you know, how is this person who has gone through these various things? How are they doing? Are they showing any of those signs that we just talked about in terms of depression, right? So we might actually want to track those sorts of things and watch. But let's see if we can kind of turn our minds here now and think about interventions. Okay, so, so we've kind of been defining the problem, right? What is it that could be going on? Now let's see, like how, how would we help somebody? How would we help ourselves or help somebody else who might be uh, experiencing depression, right? So by the way, one of the things I, I do have to say right from the get-go is that a lot of times, um, uh, like your primary care doctor will suggest medication. And I just want to let you know that the brains of people who are depressed 
look different from the brains of people who aren't depressed, all right? And that's the reasoning behind why medical professionals suggest medication, all right? Now, there's a ton of research to suggest that a combination of medication and therapy support or counseling support from somebody could be helpful. Now, uh, you know, I forgot to, to ask uh, Pastor David before, do you guys still have Stephen Ministers here? Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, Stephen Ministers could be somebody who could come alongside a person who's depressed, right? But having somebody that you can talk to, in addition to medications, there's all kinds of research to suggest that that's really helpful, and I'll, uh, and, I'll give, and I'll tell you why in just a few minutes. But I also just want to say that talking to somebody all by itself has been found to be helpful for people with depression, all right? So even without the medication, okay? So, uh, but just so you know, a medication can end up being helpful for, for some people. So here's, here's the way most people try to help a depressed person. The, the most important way is to figure out what, is, what kind of thinking are they doing that's not right, that's not good for them. So most people who are depressed engage in some kind of habitual errors of thinking. All right? So they, they, they're, they're putting two and two together in their minds in a way that's different from other people. And I'll give you some examples where, in what way this happens for people who are depressed. Now, uh, I put in, in, in quotation marks normal people because, boy, I think, you know, one in five Americans, a lot of people are going to struggle with mental health issues. But, but generally speaking, what uh, cognitive behavioral therapists would say is that a lot of us what happens if we're not depressed is that we go talk to each other, and you know what our friends tell us? They say, don't think that way, right? So when, when I'm having a tough day, I call my sister, and she's like, don't think that way, right? She, I check out my beliefs with somebody else, and she sets me straight. In this case, this would be my sister. So what cognitive behavioral therapists are suggesting is that what happens with depressed people is that they get stuck in a way of thinking that's not right, that is a depressed way of thinking, all right? And what, what other people who aren't depressed are doing is they're checking out the way they're thinking with their friends, with their relatives, with a Stephen minister, with somebody else. But a person who's depressed has a tendency to just isolate themselves and just get stuck in a negative way of thinking. All right? So that's, that's really the approach that you want to take with somebody who's depressed. You want to be listening for what's that way of thinking that this person is engaging in that really isn't isn't helpful, right? And is creating vulnerability to depression. Okay, so, uh, uh, so by the way, the way we think as, as Christians is really important, isn't it? I mean, the Bible tells us over and over and over again 
be careful about the way you think, right? And and make sure you set on things your mind on things above and not on things on the earth and have the same mindset as Christ and don't be conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So as Christians, we really do understand that how we think is important. Well, people who have studied psychology have have not surprisingly, but found the same thing. How you think is really important. Okay, so it's really important to take the time. If you're, if you have somebody in your family or a friend of yours who's depressed, it's really important to take the time to really listen to what is it that they're doing in terms of their thinking that's, that's not right here. So, so what is it that we're looking for? We're looking for particular kinds of thoughts, automatic thoughts, like I'm damaged goods, or I'll never be loved, or it will always be this way. Are are you guys getting the point here that these are examples of thoughts, depressed thoughts, that really aren't right, right? That other people would disagree with, okay? Uh, and underneath those kinds of thoughts, you're going to have what's called, at least from a cognitive behavioral perspective, a negative triad where you think that you're broken, the world is broken, and it's hopeless, it's never going to get better. Okay? And that's the negative view of self, the world, and the future. All right? So generally, that's what you're looking for. When you're trying to think about how do I help somebody who's depressed? Well, one of the really great ways is to get them connected to a professional. But another thing is to just really listen to the kind of thinking that they're engaging in. All right, so I have a lot of examples of of, the, of these right up here. And there's like different kinds of ways that we can engage in negative thinking. Okay, so uh, select, selective abstraction would be focusing in on certain details out of context. So, for instance, if I'm at a party, a get-together, and one person ignores me, even though everybody else is friendly to me, and I go home and I say to myself, everybody hated me. Right? That's called selective abstraction. But I can tell you, people who are depressed, they're going to do this. Right? Have you seen friends or... Have you seen yourself do this sometimes, right? How about this one, overgeneralization? I, I, so I teach, and, and I've occasionally had a student fall asleep in my class, right? And, and what if I did overgeneralization where if a student falls asleep, I say to myself, I'm never going to be a good teacher. Okay, that would be an example of overgeneralization, right? It's not a good way of thinking. It, and, by the way, it's probably not completely true, right? It's probably more complex and more nuanced than that. How about magnification? Uh, he was nice to me. He must want to marry me. <laughs> That's probably, it might not be the case, right? I might be thinking about this wrongly. I might be magnifying the case. How about catastrophizing? And this would be a good example of what you do when you're a perfectionist, right? 
If I fail the quiz, the teacher will lose all respect for me and I won't graduate from college and I'll never get a well-paying job and I'll be unhappy in life and let me just add, and no one will marry me and I'll be homeless. (laughs) Right? That would be a good example of catastrophizing. Right? A good example of this is the kind of thing that people do when they, they get depressed. How about minimization? I missed that question. I'm always going to be really bad at math. Well, no, it's probably not that easy to, that's probably not the right conclusion, right? How about this personalization? The teacher was really mean to me. I'm a stupid person. Could be the teacher was just having a tough day, right? How about dichotomous thinking? Dichotomous thinking has to do with either or black and white and What did we talk about that's an example of black and white thinking? Perfectionism is a good example of black and white thinking. How about this one? Uh, You know, uh, either I'm awful or I'm terrific. And I can tell you, most of us live our lives somewhere in between, right? Uh, So that wasn't a great example. I, I need to add more to that one right there. How about mind reading? I just know he thinks I'm an idiot. Good example of mind reading, right? So, so hopefully these are examples of the kind of thinking that people do when they're depressed. All right, so one of the things that you want to help people do when they're depressed is to think about themselves and their world differently and think about the future differently than this. All right, so, uh, so one of the things that you want to do I would suggest is get them connected to a Stephen minister, get them connected to another professional, but see if you can start listening for some of these errors, habitual errors in thinking. That's what happens when a person is depressed. Okay, now the other thing when a person is depressed, the other thing is that you really want to help them engage in positive activities. So the the thing is that when a person gets depressed, Basically, they pull out a life. Have you guys seen that? You've seen that with friends, haven't you, where they just kind of pull out a life. And so helping them get reconnected with life and other things that are going on around them is important. So uh, collecting things, uh, recycling old items, going on a date. They might not be ready for that right away, but relaxing going to a movie even in the middle of the week, going jogging, walking, listening to music, laughing, just helping somebody reconnect with life can be so important for somebody who's depressed. Now, uh, I'm going to switch gears a little bit, and and now I'm going to come back to this question I said I'd come back to, and I'd like your help in helping all of us think about how can we as a faith community Help people who are depressed. And I want you to think about these six things we just talked about. But first, let me give you an analogy. Okay? So let's pretend that this river is running through your city or your wherever it is that you live. Okay? And unfortunately, you've been experiencing a few drownings. You know, a few people who have fallen in. And you can see it's a pretty fast-flowing river. Unfortunately, people have fallen in 
and have drowned. So you, your city is getting together and your city is saying, hey, we got to do something about this, right? So what could you do? Well, you could, uh, you know, post people on the side of the river and pull people out, right? Or, or you could train people to do CPR a little further down the river, right? Or, or you could actually build a fence up where people are falling in, right? So part of the point I want to make here is that you can talk about recognizing signs of depression. You can talk about challenging the dysfunctional thinking, and all of these things are really, really important, right? But we can also think about some of the six things we talked about earlier and try to change some of those things in in our faith community. Okay? So so let me give you let me get you involved, but let me just set up a little structure for us. So uh upstream, this is where we're gonna try to build this fence in our faith community to help prevent depression. Alright? So one of the things, remember we were talking about increasing problem solving as opposed to avoidant coping? So let me get some ideas from you. How could you do that here? Okay, it's your, it's your turn. Let's just brainstorm. I know you guys don't know me, but Jane can tell you I'm very interactive. Self-help group. All right, so you could actually start like a like a depression self-help group. That would be a great idea, wouldn't it? What else? So a depression self-help group. Love that idea. What else? What else could you do? And we're talking about helping people engage in problem solving or as opposed to avoidant coping. Avoidant coping is just like, nope, I don't have a problem. When really I do. What else? Encourage people, Encourage people to face their problem. Yeah. What else? And yep. Okay. So say, hey, why don't you come over and help me as a way of really helping them? Great ideas. All right. Okay. You guys are totally on the right track. Let's go to the next one. How about challenge perfectionism to decrease academic stress? Boy, that's a, that's an important one, isn't it? How could you do that, and especially while maintaining the high standards that you want to maintain? Right? Like we we want we want as parents to set high standards, right? So we don't want to get rid of high standards. But somehow we have to manage perfectionism so that it doesn't turn into academic stress, so that that doesn't turn into depression, so that that doesn't turn into suicidality. So what ideas do we have here? What? Goal has to be reachable and realistic. Okay, so setting reachable, realistic goals. Okay? What else? Yep. Telling them what what really is important in life, is that what you said? Like what is truly, truly important in life, right? 
to to uh, walk humbly with your God, right, and to love justice. So, what else? Yeah. Okay, tell your children that there's always a plan B, right? So it, you aren't going to be homeless on the street. <laughs> You're going to try plan B. I, I like that idea. What else? Um, it's okay to drop a class. It's okay to drop a class. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, you, you got a reaction on that one. But it is. If it's going to create too much stress for you, which will create vulnerability to depression, right? And only you're going to know that, right? What else? Encourage people not to compare themselves to others. Don't, incur don't compare yourself to other people for Pete's sake. You know, just compete with yourself, right? That's a good idea. What else? Somebody else had that. Okay, you're still going to love them. Even if they don't reach the particular high standard that they think they need to reach or that you'd kind of like them to reach. Yep. Okay. Sit down and help them figure out that their expectations, set expectations that are practical and reachable and measurable. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Good idea. Yeah. Right. It's not just plan B. It's also C, D, E, F, and so on, right? Yeah. Communicate failures that happened in your life. I love that idea. Yeah, right. Like, wow, let me tell you the time that I flunked my test in uh, calculus or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> And that's a true story. What's a mistake and what's a failure? So important, right? What's a mistake and what's a failure? And uh, and if it's a mistake, by the way, you can learn from it, right? Yeah. Don't, don't be ashamed of getting a tutor for Pete's sake. Reach out for help, right? And, and so I would guess that in your faith community, you probably have some people who could tutor you, right? You know, you've got enough people here. Somebody's going to be good in the thing that you're looking for help in, right? Yeah. All great ideas. I, I love those ideas. Okay. Uh, oh, uh, talked about tutoring. How about decreasing interpersonal stress by increasing functionality in marriages and families? How would you do that? What are some ideas there? How, how are we going to help families and marriages be more stable so that there's less stress there and less vulnerability to depression? So what, what do you guys think? Yep. Eat dinner together. Yeah, there's this commercial for napkins nowadays on <laughs> eating dinner together. And I keep thinking, what a great idea. Too bad it's the napkin commercial, though. <laughs> and, and there's all kinds of good research about kids who eat dinner with their families at least, I think, three to five times a week actually do so much better. What else? 
And that's hard, too, sometimes, right? Because as parents, we're trying to hold down our jobs. Tough to do, but an important goal. What else? Other ideas for strengthening marriages and families? Okay, work on good communication skills so you don't end up being passive-aggressive. Where could you do that? Like, do, do you want to have a, a Friday night thing devoted to that? Well, there, there you go. If you find yourself being passive-aggressive, you can identify as, hey, I need some more communication skills. But, I mean, you could do one of those communication skills trainings in something like this, couldn't you? Or a Sunday school class or a Saturday forum or I don't know what. What else? What other ideas? Do things together. Do things together and... Do fun things both as a married couple and also as a family, right? Because uh, one of the things that they've found in the research is that fun is one of the first things to go in a relationship, and it also puts that relationship at risk. So, yeah, finding ways to do fun things together. How about decreasing the stress of immigration and acculturation? And and let's throw in there the same one. Uh, let, let's just do all three of them together. Help individuals cope with discrimination and microaggressions and challenge institutionalized racism. How could you, as a faith community, tackle some of those big issues? Say it again. Invite them to a Chinese church. That would be a great idea. There you go. Pastor Dave there. What else? You know, vote, right? Get involved in some of these larger issues, right? Yep. Talk about it, yes. Don't sweep it under the rug, right? Get it out there and talk about it. Talk about it as a family. How are we going to handle these sorts of things when they happen? Right? Great idea. Teach immigrants English. So run English classes. Do you guys do that? Well, there you go. Yeah. And, and that's all... You guys didn't know this, but that's depression prevention, what you're doing there. So nice, nice job. You didn't know you were, you were doing depression prevention. How about increasing social support? And by the way, increasing social support is just so important for all kinds of issues, not just depression, but certainly for depression. So how could you do that? Increase social support. Yeah. Join a small group. So does your church have small groups? And is there a place where they're all listed out? So join a small group. If you're not in a small group, join a small group. Right? What else? Great, great idea. 
How about at the beginning of every service makes, make you uh, ask you to shake the hand of somebody you don't know, which I think happened tonight, right? <laughs> that, that would be that would be fostering social support, right? What else? Re I'll give you my card. You can refer them all to me. <laughs> but I, I have to say that's what the church is for, right? Not everybody's going to get referred uh, to me. Not everybody's going to get referred to a Stephen minister. There are so many things that all of us can do as a faith community together, right? All kinds of really important things. And sometimes you do kick it up a level and you refer to a Stephen minister, you refer to a professional, but at the same time, there's so much social support uh, that we can do. Now, by the way, people who are depressed, sometimes it's hard to, um, to reach out to them. We're not sure what to say to them. Uh, but at the same time, reaching out and Offering them social support can be an important piece of what we do uh, in terms of helping people uh, with uh, depression. How about helping bicultural individuals negotiate two cultures? You know, when you have a, y'all know what I'm talking about, having a foot in two cultures. How, how could you help people manage that stress to prevent depression? Tell them that they're not alone. Great, great point. And one of the ways to do that is to literally talk about it out loud. Right? Actually mention it. I don't know if you guys have a church newsletter. Having someone write about it at some point. Right? How do you manage being bicultural? Right? Uh, how about this last one? This last one is, is a tough one. How to help people when they're feeling like they're going to be a burden to their family. Uh, it might be because of an illness, a disability, uh, a job loss, uh, all kinds of reasons why that might happen. How would you help people with this particular issue? As a faith community, how could you do this? Pray for them, absolutely. What else? Tell them that they're still loved. Tell them that they're still loved. And I can tell you, productivity is so important to our, us in our uh, Western mindset. Productivity is really important, isn't it? Uh, but at the same time, the fact is, is that God loves us regardless, right? So not only does God love us, but other people love us as well, right? Now... I think we're supposed to end at 9.15, right? So, Oh, 9.30. Okay, all right. Well, I'll keep going. <laughs> I didn't want to uh, become burdensome to you guys. So. All right. So, uh, so uh, let me just emphasize how important social support is. And, and, and you guys all brought up these issues. Um, uh, but helping people get through depression... 
friends are, are very important in terms of helping people get through depression. And by the way, one of the things that tends to get in the way is stigma, right? Like, ah, oh, I don't know if I want to help out too much because I'm not sure exactly what to say. But, but getting past those fears and reaching out to the person anyway uh, uh, and getting them involved in a social situation can be so uh, helpful. Uh, and social support has been found to uh, be an important buffer in all kinds of situations. Whoops, I keep uh, this is a great little, uh, little thing here. Uh, but, and certainly buffers against depression. Social support buffers against depression. All right. Uh, so, uh, one of the things that, uh, I told you I would get to eventually, uh, let me get to it now, and that's this. That, uh, uh, people who think about suicide usually have a mental health problem, okay? So oftentimes we kind of think, uh, mental health problem equals suicide, suicide equals mental health problem. Actually, that's not the case, as I was mentioning to you earlier. Uh, actually, only 1% to 3% of people who uh, have depression actually go on to hurt themselves, to kill themselves, and die by suicide. So one of the questions you might have is, well, who are these people? Which ones of these people who are depressed actually go on uh, to harm themselves. Well, one of the prominent theories these days is a, is, is um, uh, a person at a university, uh, uh, Florida State University, named Dr. Thomas Joyner. And this is what he talks about. He says the people who go on to uh, uh, kill themselves are people who feel like they're a burden and they've lost a sense of belonging. They also have acquired the ability to go against the, the, the life instinct, the, the instinct to preserve their own lives, okay? So one of the things that we could think about in this particular situation in terms of how do we prevent this kind of thing is to really think about how do we encourage belongingness in our faith community and how do we encourage people to have a sense of meaningful contribution so that they aren't, in fact, feeling like they're a burden, right? And one of the things is that that's especially challenging when there is a, an illness that prevents a person to be productive the way they used to be productive, right? So one of the things we want to think about here is what do we do in that particular situation, all right, so one of the things that people have found in our society these days is that social networks have been shrinking, right? So that would explain why some people lose that sense of belonging. And of course, losing a sense of belonging and social isolation are very serious because it puts people at risk for thinking about suicide. So one of the things that they've found and this is something that I think faith communities could do really easily, is one of the things they found is just sending people a letter really matters. Okay, so that, that so let me tell you about a study, a research study that was done just to make this point right here. That, that just reaching out to a person by letter, and of course either in person or by phone, 
can just really make a difference, okay? So this is a, a researcher out of San Francisco, Jerome Motto, who studied uh, 3,000 people who were in a hospital because of a suicide attempt. Okay, so uh, what happened is that when these people were discharged, there was one group that, that was willing to follow through with outpatient treatment, okay? So uh, those people just pursued outpatient treatment, okay? But then there was this other group of people who refused any kind of treatment, okay? So Jerome Motto divided those people in half randomly. So half of those people got a letter and half of those people got nothing. Okay, so what? So essentially, he ended up with three groups, right? One group was getting treatment. These two groups were getting no treatment, but half of that group actually got this letter. And this is what the letter said. The letter basically said, Dear X, it's been some time since you were here at the hospital. We hope things are going well for you. If you want to drop us a note, we'd be glad to hear from you. There was an envelope in there. Uh, and if they sent back a little letter to the hospital, the hospital would answer it and send back a response, okay? So here's, here's what happened. Actually, the, the group that was receiving treatment had the highest suicide rate, and part of that's going to be because the, those people might have selected themselves into this treatment group, okay? But here's the important thing about these two groups that didn't get treatment. The, the group that got the letter had the lowest suicide rate, and that was maintained for two years, which is the most difficult time following a hospitalization. So I'll tell you, I, I look at this kind of study, and I think this, this is something that a faith community could do, right? Write letters to people who are depressed or who are struggling in some kind of way, with a mental health issue, uh, it could even be suicidality or whatever. Just reaching out to somebody with a letter can really increase that sense of belonging that's so important. In a sense, it's like offering social support, but through a letter instead of through an, uh, in through your, except instead of your actual presence. Now. Pete, they've replicated this study, you know, done this study again uh, with automated printed postcards and check-ins by phone and in-person visits. So, I mean, so you could, in fact, go visit somebody who's depressed, or you could even just send them a letter or give them a phone call, all right? So that's that's a way where a faith community could really embrace somebody and help them regain that sense of belonging that could be so crucial uh, in, in, uh, in that particular case. Now, the other piece that I think is so important is counteracting this sense of burdensomeness because in our, our Western societies, we just think productivity is so important. It defines our sense of worth, doesn't it? And one of the things that we have to counteract when we lose productivity in some kind of way is we have to counteract that sense of burdensomeness. And one of the ways I think that it would be possible to do that is to really help this person engage their spiritual giftedness in their faith community. You know, what is it that God has gifted them to do in this particular faith community? 
So uh, I have an example from one of my students at Gordon-Conwell named Tiffany Lim, who uh, just put together this wonderful uh, encouraging sermon to the class that I was teaching. Uh, and, uh, and she was trying to help people really understand the importance of praise and that anybody could praise God and engage in praise, even if you had lost all other productivity. All right? And this is what she said. She said, I took the breath that God gave me, the vocal muscles he gave me, the volition he gave me, the emotion he gave me, and even the flow of time he gave me, and made them all come together in a concerted effort to vibrate the air molecules and made all of them proclaim how great is our God. I, uh, it just gives me goosebumps every time I, I read that. Because uh, really what Tiffany was trying to encourage all of us to do was to connect with the importance of praise and the fact that all of us can praise God in, in any kind of circumstance, right? All of us can praise God. All of us can pray as well for the, each other in our faith community regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And I think it's those kinds of things that really counteract burdensomeness, that sense of burdensomeness that can be so uh, difficult when a person is struggling with depression and possible suicidal thinking. So another book that was written along these lines talked about how God intervened in the lives of Elijah and Moses. Both of those men had moments where they said, God, just take my life. And in those moments, God really reconnected them with the giftedness that he, uh, to minister to his people in both of those cases. Uh, one of you uh, back there was talking about the importance of prayer. And uh, Catherine Green McCrate is a theologian, and she herself has struggled a great deal with depression. And this is what she's written. She's written about how important it was for her to know that other people were praying for her in the midst of her great depression. And this is what she said. She said, one very important way to help your friends who suffer from mental illness is to pray for them. The assurance that people were praying for me, since I had so much trouble praying for myself, was such a salve. This was so vital for me that many people were knocking on God's door for me, strengthened me in putting up with the disease, the depression, and sped the healing, even though the full healing was years in coming, and maybe it would never have come had people not been praying. I think uh, Dr. Catherine Green McCrate makes a really important point about how we can all be involved with each other in the midst of, of depression. Uh, it's like two minutes till the end. Shall I? Is this an okay place to stop? Okay, well, let me just say this. Hopefully, I have sparked some, hopefully, all together, we've sparked some thinking and some conversation here. I am going to hope that it doesn't stop here. I am going to hope that this is just a beginning for you all in terms of thinking about how can we as a faith community come together 
and really support people who are at risk of suffering from depression. So uh, I just want to thank you all for your wonderful participation, and uh, uh, thanks very much.